0: Welcome to Scholastic Reads, our podcast about books, authors, and the joy and power of reading. I'm your host, Suzanne McCabe, Editor at Large at Scholastic. Thank you for joining us. Today we're honoring AAPI Month with authors Debbie Michiko Florence and Gita Varadarajan, a former classroom teacher. Debbie is the author of award-winning middle-grade novels, Keep It Together, Keiko Carter, and Just Be Cool, Jenna Sakai, among several other titles. Debbie is a third-generation Japanese-American who was born and raised in California. She now lives in Mystic, Connecticut, where her upcoming middle-grade novel, Sweet and Sour, is set. We'll talk about Sweet and Sour and the summer romance between characters Mai and Zach. Later, Gita Varadarajan will tell us about her upcoming picture book. It's her first, called Mai Bindi. It's illustrated by Archana Srinivasan. Gita is a teacher in Princeton, New Jersey. Born and raised in India, she developed a love of storytelling, listening to her grandfather spin tales for the family. In 2010, Gita and her family moved to New York City, where she earned a master's degree in literacy education at Teachers College at Columbia University. First, here is Debbie Michiko-Florence. Hi, Debbie. Welcome to the program. Hi, Suzanne. Nice to be here. Thank you very much for having me. I am, for one, I know many of your fans are too, eagerly awaiting the publication of your new middle grade novel, Sweet and Sour. It's due out in July, (laughs) so we're a few months to go. I wondered, though, if you could talk a little bit about the book, tell us about it and what inspired it.
1: Oh, my goodness. This was a book that was entirely conceived of and written during the pandemic, and it was my escape. I would wake up in the morning and I'd escape into the story. And it was a story about it is a story about friendship, childhood friendships, betrayal and revenge. And I have long been fascinated with friendships. It's why I write about friendships. Even as a full grown adult, friendships are sometimes still evolving and challenging. There are misunderstandings. So I am fascinated by it. And this particular story just popped in my head. What would happen if two best friends had a misunderstanding and that misunderstanding kind of just grew. And I decided that they were a boy and a girl best friend and they only got together every summer. And all of a sudden the whole thing like kind of unraveled in front of me that it was taking place in the place that I live, Mystic, Connecticut. And so that was my escape. I woke up and ran away to Mystic, of Zach and Mize every day. (laughs) It's not set during a
0: pandemic, but they haven't seen each other for two years just because Zach and his family have been living in Japan. So it's kind of interesting to have that gap, which many of us have had with our friendships during the pandemic. Yes, definitely.
1: Uh, Yeah, I didn't even do that on purpose, but yeah, in retrospect, Yeah. (laughs) could you read a passage aloud from
0: Sweet and Sour and set the stage for our listeners? Although I think you've chosen the opening
1: passage. I have. Okay, I will just read a little bit from this. Memories are funny things. They have a life of their own, bubbling up when you least expect them. And once they unfurl before your eyes, there's almost nothing you can do to stop them. Some memories are sweet, the kind you are happy to replay in your mind. They make you smile and your heart skip. You want to curl up with those memories and snuggle them. But there are sour memories too, sharp, painful ones that make you flinch and your heart curdle. Like I said, you can't control the kind of memories that appear, so it's sometimes better not to remember them at all. Sometimes, though, it just happens. Like when the plane touched down on the runway and I jolted awake. We were back in Mystic, Connecticut, where I had spent Six weeks of every summer for the first 11 years of my life. Two years had passed since the last time we'd come, and as I blinked at the familiar sight of TF Green Airport, I shoved the memories of previous summers down deep inside myself. I held them there as we disembarked, grabbed our luggage from one of four baggage carousels, and climbed into the hired car waiting for us at the pickup spot. My parents laughed at how disoriented I seemed. I never fell asleep on our cross-country summer flights, but this summer was different.
0: Ah, uh, that's lovely, Debbie. So this is, my, this is my talking to set the stage. Yes. She is the young narrator. She's traveling with her parents from California. Exactly. It's, it's such an adorable romance and really a great escape with all of the troubles we have in our world. I'm just enjoying retreating into it myself. Oh, thank you. And I wondered, you know, I I thought it was so neat that my, among her many passions, is wildlife and she's an avid birder. Is that one of your interests too?
1: (laughs) It is. I actually have my degree in zoology and I'm a former uh, raptor rehabilitator, which means I used to help take care of injured and orphaned birds of prey, like owls and eagles and hawks. And I am a birder, but I'm not expert. I can identify the birds in my backyard and some additional birds. I love watching them, but I have friends who are much better. And oftentimes I'll take a picture of a bird and then text it to my friend, Cindy. I'm like, what is this? <laughs> <laughs> oh my
0: goodness. That's neat. Well, how did you make the transition from zoology to writing and literature?
1: As I say, my school visits to young kids, I, didn't, I was an avid reader and I love to write stories but I never quite connected that being an author could be a career. Um, Back then we didn't have the benefit of authors coming into school. We certainly didn't have the internet. So I wrote stories all my life, all through high school, but only for myself. And uh, when it was time to go to college, I'm like, what do I love? I love writing and I love animals. So I studied animals, kept writing. I had, um, I minored in English and had actually my English professors tell me I should switch majors. I struggled in my science classes. And it wasn't until I was working at a zoo as an as associate curator of education, as an educator, and I got married to my husband and his job took us to Mexico. And it was then I was like, well, can't take my job with me. And I don't speak Spanish well enough to get a job in Mexico. So I thought about what I loved to do. And that's when I seriously considered becoming an author. And I wanted to write for young people. And that, that started me on my journey here.
0: What is it you're hoping to convey to young people and how do you want to connect with them?
1: The books that I loved reading as a young person, and even today, uh, I love friendship. I love friendship stories. I love romance stories, the, the whole heady first crush stories, especially in middle school. For me, my middle school years are the most emotionally memorable, like big changes and friendships and romantic feelings. And so I like to revisit that a lot. And I hope that young people who read my books can see themselves in it, in them, um, and their friendships and learn how to treat one another. And I also, uh, all of my books star Japanese American main characters. And it is such an honor to be able to write from my personal experience and background but to be able to focus on u- universal things like friendship and those first crush feelings.
0: What do your young readers tell you about your work and how they connect? They must just love seeing <laughs> characters like themselves too.
1: They do. I get, um, because most of my readers are between 10 and 12-ish, most of the letters that come to me are from parents and teachers, but oftentimes they'll like include a little note and just- hearing young readers tell me how much they love the story or how much they related to the to the characters or how much they disliked a certain character and it made them mad it just blows my mind to be able to <laughs> really get readers really into like the invested into my characters stories well somebody told me that well i don't know if i'm giving away anything from an earlier book from keep it together keiko carter but somebody told me that one of those characters made them so mad that they drew a picture of this character, like a voodoo doll, and like scribbled on it
2: because they're so oh, mad at her. Oh, how
0: funny. Oh, how funny. Well, <laughs> that said, Mai really knows how to hold a grudge. I'll, I'll give her that, right? <laughs> she really does. And yes. she loves
1: to tell stories in her head.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's so funny. So could you describe your artistic process? I, you know, Where do you get your ideas outside of your own middle school experience? And do you write every
1: day? Usually it's the main character who starts talking to me. The main character uh, for the Just Be Cool, Jenna Actually, that whole book started with the first line. I very rarely start with the first line that I keep. But that one, Heartbreak is for suckers, that popped in my head and that stayed. Uh, So oftentimes it's a character talking to me that gets me started on a story. And my first drafts are extremely messy and meandering. And I never show them to anybody. And knowing that no one will ever see it really allows me to just write this messy discovery draft from beginning to end. And that's fun for me in the sense that I don't have to worry about is it good or not. I just kind of get to play around with it. And then the real first draft happens now that I kind of know what's going on. And then after that, the revisions, that's my favorite part. And I do write every day. When I'm working on a project, I have to write every day because more than two days goes by. I the character kind of leaves my head.
0: Are there any authors who stayed with you from childhood or from your middle school years? Any books that really made a big impression?
1: Well, I have to say, I always go back to uh, Lisa Yee's Millicent Men, Girl Genius, and Linda Sue Park's uh, Project Mulberry. Obviously, I was not a kid when those books came out. My daughter was. My daughter was of that age. And Those two books that first off, both my daughter and I were able to see ourselves and they were contemporary stories that were not centered on being different other than, you know, you're a middle schooler and you always feel different. But here are these contemporary Asian American main characters going about their everyday lives and dealing with friendships and family issues. And that also by reading those two books, I thought, oh my goodness, I might be able to write the Stories of My Heart with Japanese-American Main Characters.
0: Yeah, Millicent Min, right? <laughs> oh, yeah. Such oh, a great, <laughs> great, yeah, such a great series. My goodness. Yeah. So as you know, we're celebrating AAPI Month. I wondered if there are any particular contributions of the AAPI community that you're reflecting on in particular this year.
1: Oh, my goodness. So I couldn't even begin to list all... The members of the AAPI community that I so admire and respect because of all the hard work that they do. I am not comfortable oftentimes standing out on social media, particularly, and speaking out, but I do with directly with friends and family. But um, I admire all the people out there speaking out, Ellen O, in particular, of We really Need Diverse Books. I am part of an Asian American text thread group that we text each other daily and talk about AAPI issues or just our lives um, includes Mike Jung and Sarah Park Dolan and Angie Wang and Paula Yu and and a whole other group of people, Bettina Shea and Jung Kim, (laughs) like, oh, I don't want to forget anybody. But they in particular have been so pivotal in the last couple of years in educating me and teaching me about our shared history, because I never learned about Asian American history growing up in school. It wasn't until college that I took an Asian American studies course. And even today, I'm constantly learning. So I'm so grateful to everybody in the AAPI community who write the book, who stand up and speak out, who who are making a huge difference.
0: That's a stellar list, Debbie, for sure. What are you working on now yourself? What's your next book?
1: Right now, I'm doing copy edits of my next scholastic book called This Is How I Roll. And I believe that it's coming out in 2023. This is, yeah, I always forget what year we're in, but (laughs) it's next year. And it's about a girl, Sana Kami, whose father is a rather famous sushi chef. And she loves to cook and wants to also be like her dad, but she feels like her dad does not support her dreams. So she meets a boy. And together they start a kind of a YouTube channel on making uh, kawaii sushi, cute little sushi, like shaped like pandas or whatever. But she keeps this a secret. She really believes her parents don't want her how to cook. And, you know, when you keep secrets, that can only lead to trouble. (laughs) <laughs> yes as zach and
0: I will tell you from yes. sweet and sour i loved by the way the little touches of zach's the character in sweet and sour his his uh life in tokyo and what he brought back with him and the little gifts that were so beautifully wrapped yeah. Yeah. <laughs> a friend lived in tokyo for a few years and that was one of the things that stood out to her too was the beautiful wrapping for everything.
1: Everything is a gift. Yeah. Yes. C- I would buy like, you can buy a sticker and they would wrap it in this pretty paper and put pretty tape on it. And yeah, it's amazing. <laughs> Everything's a I, gift.
0: Yeah, I love that. Everything's a gift. Yeah.
1: So is there anything else you'd
0: like to add before
1: I let you go? Uh, no, I'm just, I, I have to do a shout out to Scholastic. I just love being an author with Scholastic. I, it feels like a family. And uh-huh. um I can't wait until I can hop on a train and get back out there and hang out with my editor, Jenny Abramowitz, who is super awesome, and everybody else over there.
0: Yes. (laughs) Oh, that's really sweet to say. It's such an honor that you're a scholastic author, and I'm so happy I got to talk with you today.
1: Well, thank you so much.
0: Now... Here is author Gita Varatharajan. She'll talk about her upcoming picture book, My Bindi, which is illustrated by Archana Srinivasan. Hi, Gita. Welcome to the program.
2: Hi, Suzanne. Thank you so much for having me.
0: My first question is, I just want to know about your childhood and how you became a storyteller.
2: So I grew up with my grandparents in the southern Indian city of Chennai, and I went to live with them when I was four years old to go to school in the city because my father worked in the remote tea plantations where there were no schools. My grandfather was a retired civil engineer, but behind that thin veneer of a middle-class man was a master storyteller. And I remember Sunday afternoons very vividly. You know, Chennai is a very hot place, so the Sunday afternoons, most people are taking naps, but my grandfather would gather us all, all his grandchildren, two of my cousins, my brother and I, who all lived with him and my grandmother, and we would sit on the cold mosaic floor. The fan would be whirring above us. The sea breeze would be blowing in from the veranda, and he would tell us stories, and sometimes we would all be characters in his stories. And as he narrated, we would role play our parts. And he told us all kinds of stories. Some were fantastical, and some were about his own childhood, his marriage, and so on. So his stories took us to places that were imaginary, as well as places that we really knew well. And I can still hear the rise and fall of his voice and the dramatic pauses he made. He made such a big production of it that I. I write with his voice in my head. So he loved telling stories and I think he passed that on to me and I started to see the world through stories. And I guess that without even realizing it, my grandfather was preparing me to be a writer. So when I had the opportunity to write a story at the age of 40, when I was at teacher's college doing my master's program, that storytelling voice just took flight.
0: I can hear the storytelling voice already. Such a beautiful recollection. It's so moving. Now you have a brand new picture book. It's called My Bindi. And I wanted you to tell our listeners about the book and about the main character and her journey of self-discovery, really.
2: Right. So My Bindi is about little Divya, whose amma wears a bindi all the time. And she wants her daughter to also wear it with pride. And she explains the significance of the bindi to Divya, that it's a third eye and it looks inward and protects you. So when Divya finally decides to wear the bindi, she does so with a lot of trepidation. She's feeling proud on one hand to show a part of herself that she had been hiding her Indian heritage. But she's also very scared on the other hand as she anticipates that her classmates will make fun of her. However, she discovers that her assumptions were wrong, that her classmates were curious to learn more about the Bindi. And I think the turning point in the book is when her teacher invites Divya to tell the class about her Bindi. That's when Divya reminds herself of the symbolic power of the Bindi and discovers her strength and her courage as she shares an important part of her identity. So My Bindi is a story of not just Divya's discovery of her pride in her culture and her heritage, but also of her courage.
0: What inspired you to tell Divya's story now?
2: I think that uh, lots of kids come to school and reveal only parts of themselves in school. Either they don't feel comfortable or they feel they will stand out and won't fit in. And I think that a story like my Bindi is kind of universal to all kids that, hey, show your authentic self and be proud of all parts of you and, and show all parts of you with pride when, wherever you are. And when you love yourself, the world will see the beauty in you.
0: Could you read a passage from my Bindi and set the stage for our listeners?
2: Sure. This is the scene when her mother walks in into her room. As I get dressed for school the next morning, Amma walks in with a box in her hand. A smile flickers across her face. Then she says, Divya, my dear, the time has come. Choose one. I swallow hard and look inside Amma's beautiful bindi box. I see a galaxy of bindis, like a million stars in the sky. Some are like raindrops that dazzle in the morning light. Some are like half moons, brilliant and bright. Some swirl like tops whirling in loops. Some shine like lone stars in a dark sky. I search through them all, each one so beautiful in its own way. Then I see it, the perfect one, a blazing sun, a sparkly round orange one with a shiny stone in the middle. Here. I say nervously, handing it to Amma. Her bangles clang as she lifts my chin and looks at the space between my brows. Then she gently presses the bindi to my forehead. My forehead feels heavy and my heart feels full. It's beating so hard it might explode. Now take a look, Amma says. There in the mirror, I see a shining star. My mother's joy, my father's pride. And then I see something else. She's different from all the rest. Not quite like anyone else with a glimmering dot on her forehead. I see me. Am I scared or am I proud? I feel all mixed up in my head.
0: Tell us about the significance of the Bindi and this whole world that Divya discovers.
2: So the Bindi in um, Hindu culture is considered the third eye that's right between the other two and it looks inward and it symbolizes strength, your inner strength, right? So in India, it's now become an accessory and people wear it, you know, it used to be a a red dot and now it's all colors, all shapes, all sizes, all kinds of patterns and usually Indian women uh, who are married wear it. So when you become a widow, they ask you to take your bindi off. And then young girls, of course, young Indian girls also wear it. And now everybody wears it. It's not just Hindu girls, but everybody wears it. So I think that for in, in, Divya's, in Divya's case, her mother has been wearing the bindi all her life. It's kind of habit. And she wants to pass that on to her child But Divya is navigating such a different world here in America. And her mother is really not aware of that world because mom is at home. She's living the life most immigrant adults live. They are comfortable in their skin. She wears her Indian clothes. She's wearing her bindi. But Divya is navigating a very different world. And I think she's kind of getting these signals that she has to fit in and not stand out. And she's trying to do that.
0: The illustrations really draw the reader in and I think let them see what Divya is going through and her, her life. Could you talk a little bit about
2: them and how they complement your story? Absolutely. So Archana Srinivasan has captured the family, the home, the feelings of Divya and her amma and her appa so beautifully. And as an immigrant myself, I know firsthand what it feels like to leave your home and move to a new country. It can make you feel lost and unrooted and lonely in so many ways that you bring little things with you that remind you of home. So Archita has inserted these small details that are so important to notice as it really conveys who this family is and why their heritage and culture is so important to them. So, for example, the home of Divya has little Indian artifacts, like the magnets on the fridge, the cushion covers, the bedspread, and even Ammas kurta or tunic uh, have Indian designs on them. And the colors capture the same sentiment too, like it's a reminder of home for Divya's parents. And there's something spiritual and almost meditative in the scenes where Divya learns about the symbolic strength, the Bindi lens. I think overall, it expresses joy and pride in one's culture and heritage. So I think she's done a fabulous job of bringing all of this together to convey to the reader who this family is, Divya's heritage and traditions, and why those are important to her.
0: Yeah, the setting really does come to life. I absolutely agree. Now, you teach in Princeton, New Jersey, you teach fourth graders, I wonder if you've shared my Bindi with your own students, and if so, how, how have they responded to the story?
2: Yes, I've absolutely shared my Bindi with my own students. In fact, the first thing they ask me is to share my writing with them. And I've also shared it with kids across New Jersey when I go on author visits. And it's very interesting. Typically, I've found two kinds of responses. Some have responded the same way the kids in the story responded, curious at first and then appreciative of Divya sharing her heritage with pride. And so it's kind of affirming their own self-belief. And on the other hand, I've had kids who, when asked to predict what might happen at school when Divya walks in with her bindi, say that she might be made fun of by her classmates. And this mirrors the same fear that Divya has too. And this speaks to the real fear that kids have of feeling different or standing out. So, you know, seeing both these is, is interesting because kids respond to a text based on how they feel about themselves and their own life experiences. And I see that playing out with the responses I get in my, uh, my Bindi.
0: Well, that's, that's upsetting to hear. What do you hope children who aren't of Indian descent will take away from My Bindi?
2: So, I think My Bindi is a universal story of embracing one's culture and heritage and giving all the kids who um, read this book the courage to show their authentic selves, their full selves in school. And I hope that kids will feel proud of all their identities and don't feel that being different is scary but rather that being different should be celebrated. And I'm hoping the book inspires kids like Divya to discover their courage to be themselves.
0: As you know, we're celebrating AAPI month and I was curious what contributions of the AAPI community and challenges that you're reflecting on this year.
2: So as we celebrate AAPI month, I am so inspired by the contributions of the community, especially in children's literature. With Jason Chin and Andrea Wang being awarded the Caldecott um, and Rajini LaRocca getting the Newbery Honor, I feel that the voices of authors of, from, this, from the AAPI community is finally beginning to be valued and celebrated. So I'm very thrilled about this progress. On the other hand, I think the histories of the AAPI community is not fully represented or understood. So when we think of Asian American, I don't think we acknowledge the vastness and the breadth of the Asian diaspora and the complexities of the histories of the people and the countries of origin. And I think that is a challenge. So I'm definitely reflecting on the fact that the AAPI community is a multitude of communities. And we need to celebrate and give voice to all these different cultures and peoples who are clubbed into one package. The other thing I'm thinking about is also that the voices of the AAPI communities have to be heard and taken more seriously. I think with the recent hate crimes against AAPI communities, I worry that this notion of considering Asians as foreigners who are a cause of many of the problems in the U.S. is being further perpetuated by some people. I think about the Sikh community, the Muslims from the Asian communities who continue to face bias and the recent hate crimes against the Chinese, the Korean and the Sikh Americans, which have been on the rise. These are all very concerning. And we continue to operate in the margins to a large extent and are still invisible. And so my hope is that the AAPI community is now... Is, will become more involved in mainstream conversation in America and that our voices and, and ideas are taken into account as we define who is American.
0: Invisible, no more. That's the goal, right? It's been such a joy to talk with you, Gita. I really appreciate your taking the time.
2: Thank you so much, Suzanne, and uh, for giving me this wonderful opportunity to share my bindi and all my thoughts about all those wonderful questions you asked me.
0: My great thanks again to Debbie Michiko Florence and Gita Vardarajen for joining me today. And thank you for listening. To learn more about the authors we discussed and for other books with AAPI themes, check the show notes or go to scholastic.com/podcast. Special thanks to producer Bridget Benjamin, associate producer Constance Gibbs, sound engineer Daniel Jordan, and music composer, Lucas Elliott Eberle. I'm Suzanne McCabe. We look forward to sharing more Scholastic Reads next time.